Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. We have been, as I mentioned, uh, for uh, this will be the eighth week in a series on the Holy Spirit. Not just a series on the spiritual gifts, because some of you might be wondering, well, man, we keep talking, we've read about the spiritual gifts, we've talked about the Holy Spirit here, but we haven't defined the gifts. We'll get there. Uh, but the Holy Spirit is more than just the nine spiritual gifts, right? And something I have mentioned the last two weeks, uh, because it started with this idea, and this is the one we've hammered, and I'll hammer it a little bit more today, is this important truth that the gifts are not there to elevate the person who walks in that gift or who operates in that gift. The gifts are not about the gifted. They are about the people that are being ministered to in the assembly by the gift of the Holy Spirit in operation. And therefore, it is super important to always remember about yourself and about anybody else that just because somebody is operating in a gift, it might be exciting to hear somebody come up with a prophecy that is dead on, to operate in gifts of healings, to deliver a tongue, an interpretation, but that does not mean they are spiritually mature. Right? The gifts are not an indication of spiritual maturity, and Exhibit A is the church in Corinth. This is what we were talking about. And, uh, and I mentioned last week, that uh, another one, well, let me just do this. What it, what it made me think of was I knew I had somewhere uh, from clear back in my Rhema days a list of things that do not equal spiritual maturity. And I just want to start with these. Uh, I think this is the one I mentioned last week. One thing that does not equal spiritual maturity that you cannot judge someone's maturity in the spirit by is simply the amount of time they have been saved. You can't say that this person has been a Christian for 20 years, therefore... They are spiritually mature. Now, spiritual maturity does take time, but just time does not produce spiritual maturity. It's how that time is spent. If you look at Hebrews 5.12, the author of Hebrews, I happen to believe it's Paul, but anyway, writes, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. So there's a clear indication. Here are people who have been Christians long enough to be mature, to be teaching others, but they had not progressed in their spiritual growth and still had to be fed and treated like babies. A second thing that is not an indicator of spiritual maturity is the amount of knowledge a believer has. Now, knowledge is important. I don't believe you can, you can mature spiritually without knowledge. But again, it's not the knowledge. It's not what you know. It's what you know that is right and what you do with that knowledge. That's the most important thing. You know, we used to say uh, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. What are you doing with that knowledge? Are you just displaying that knowledge? Here's what... Uh, 1 Corinthians 8.1 says, now concerning, uh, no, that's not it, uh, <laughs> span on this, knowledge puffs up, yes, concerning, uh, concerning things offered to idols, we know that uh, we have all knowledge, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Knowledge puffs up, and we've seen this, now I got, we got to be careful with this too, there's an unfortunate tendency 
especially, I think, in churches like ours, Word of Faith churches, charismatic churches, where we tend to denigrate higher learning. Oh, somebody went to seminary. Somebody got a degree. Somebody's got a master's degree. Somebody's got their MDiv, whatever. Uh, and then we, we sort of say, oh, that, that doesn't mean anything in the kingdom of God. No, you're right. I mean, that's not something we can take before God and say, look what I did. I earned a PhD. Uh, that doesn't equal spiritual maturity, even if your degree is in ministry. All right? But I thank God for people who have studied and learned and conquered these things because they've produced works like concordances and uh, translations that I couldn't get along without as a minister. And I'm simply saying that just having this knowledge, uh, and you can see it, there, there, there's a swagger, there's, a, there's a, the, the, any sort of boasting or I don't have to listen to you because I have more knowledge than you. Well, we can re- everybody can receive from everybody else because God desires to, again, gift people so that we can speak into each other's lives. It's for the common good. Uh, another thing that does not equal spiritual maturity, this is number three, is a believer going through a trial. A trial has no intrinsic value. Uh, we've been promised those things. We are going to go through trials. In and of itself, uh, a trial does not produce spiritual maturity. And again, it depends on what you do with it. How do you respond to the trial? Right? The enemy hates all of us. So all, and all of us are going to go through trials. And the fact that you are going through one does not mean that you are especially, oh, I'm going through a trial because the devil sees me as the biggest threat on the face of the earth, so he's really attacking me. You know, that's not really how it works. But you can derive spiritual maturity from the suffering process if you respond scripturally. Some of you already know what scripture I'm going to read. In James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing. We're actually going to come back to that in a little while. Fourth one, we've already talked about operating in the gifts of the Spirit. Does not make you spiritual, and we know that because the Corinthians were a bunch of immature babies, and they lacked nothing in terms of spiritual gifts. Uh, Another one, surprisingly, involvement in ministry or Christian service. There are many who are involved in ministry, many involved in serving, and while all that service is appreciated, that doesn't mean you're spiritually mature. Can we think of a scriptural example, perhaps part of Jesus' ministry team, who was very involved in spiritual service, but wasn't spiritually mature? Anybody remember this dude's name? Judas, yes. Uh, Another one, uh, obvious one, and the final one for now, is the outward appearance of a believer. Matthew 7.15 says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. And that's where we're going to go today. Quick recap. In 1 Corinthians uh, 13, a couple weeks ago, we were looking at 1 Corinthians 13, which is the great love chapter. And I'm in, in chapter 12, the gifts are enumerated. He lists them, tells us what they are. And then uh, he, he's urging them to recognize what I started out with. The gifts are not there to elevate the gifted. They're there to edify the body. 
And then he compares it to the body. It's like every body part is important for the good of the body, not just for, for the good of that particular body part. We are all working together. And then he says at the end of that chapter, and I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And then we get the love chapter. And I don't want to beat this to death. I know I've said it several different ways, but I think it is so important. And I, this is the message I preached two weeks ago. Uh, it really is the key to, to understanding this whole thing. This verse, this chapter, many people think that what it's saying is, yeah, there's the gifts. And yeah, they're good, they're okay, but don't really think about them too much because what's really important is love. Yeah, 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 gifts, but love, love. As long as you've got love, don't worry about having the gifts because the gifts are going to disappear anyway. And it does say, tongues will cease, prophecies will cease, words of knowledge will cease. But that's not what this is there for. This whole passage, 12, 13, and 14, is about the gifts. And the point of chapter 3 is to simply put the gifts in perspective. The perspective, give us a point of reference when we desire or feel led to operate in the gifts. We, need, we can check our motives and whether we are on the right track by looking at the love chapter. What am I doing this for? What's my motivation? What will be the outcome of my delivering this word, of speaking... Uh, in tongues at this point in the assembly. And here, I believe, is the pertinent passage as we apply this to the gifts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 4, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I'm not going to go through those things one by one, but we can see some of the stuff we've talked about when somebody operating in the gift talked about the person who just kind of had a little bit of swagger when they were called to lay hands on the sick. Same thing as if somebody's standing up to uh, deliver a word. What if it's a corrective word? What if it's, uh, you know, do they delight in pointing out faults. Ah, the Lord says this about you. You know, is, is it mean? Is it rejoice? No, it doesn't rejoice in evil, doesn't rejoice in fault, uh, in fault finding, doesn't behave rudely. It doesn't get up in the middle of somebody else sharing something, right? It doesn't interrupt the message from the pulpit with a word of prophecy or a tongue or anything like that. It doesn't draw attention to itself. It's not self-seeking. Uh, believes all things. We're going to kind of come back to that too because it belie I believe that it believes the best about, if there's a good way of interpreting this, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and not try to uh, superimpose what I think I'm, I'm seeing on you. I'm not going to ascribe evil motives to you. Look at this verse though in Philippians chapter 2 beginning in verse 3. I'm throwing a lot of scripture at you today and you really should. I'm just going to encourage you. I know we've got these up here and I know it's handy and I know today's picnic day. Uh, but let's, let's get back in the habit of bringing our Bibles to church, okay? It is so good to be able to flip. You'll get good at it, especially in sermons like this where I'm throwing uh, 10 or 12 scriptures at you. Find your way around the Bible, and it's good to see these things in your own Bible. We could, I could put anything up there. You don't have to believe. You, you're trusting me that that's actually the Bible. I could be making that up, but I'm not. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Well, that's pretty simple, isn't it? 
We would, we would make a lot of headway in determining whether what we're doing is the right thing if we stop there and say, is this benefiting others or is this just benefiting me? What am I doing for the common good? Back in, in, in uh, Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 13, yeah, again, it does go on to say that prophecy uh, and tongues, etc., will vanish. But we, it also tells us when. And this is what we talked about two weeks ago. When will the gifts cease? When we are face to face with Jesus in heaven. There will be no need for the gifts there. Will love remain? Absolutely. Love's not one of the gifts of the Spirit. So again, spiritual gifts are for the edification, the building up of the church, not a measure of spiritual maturity. Here's the question. Is there a way to measure spiritual maturity? A way to observe it? A way to judge it? And we've touched on this a little bit with some of the earlier stuff, but actually there is, and we will look at it here in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. I'm glad he threw that and the like there because people say, well, he didn't name mine. Well, it's like one of these, I promise you. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. Now, do you remember back in one of the earlier messages here where there have been... Uh, celebrations of what amounted to a celebration of complete loss of self-control. Now, I'm not saying put God in a box and God can only do this, but if the primary hallmark of any gathering or any manifestation is, I have completely lost self-control, then that's not a display of the fruit of the Spirit. Okay? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control I submit to you that all of this is in you if you are born again. I think it is significant that he doesn't talk about the fruits of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is all these things. We can say, uh, I, have never I have never operated in a particular gift but we cannot say, well, God didn't choose me to bear the fruit of kindness. He only gave me the, the, uh, the fruit of goodness or faithfulness. You won't find me the nicest guy. That's just not my fruit. What's my fruit? Uh, my fruit is uh, self-control. No, if the Spirit is in you, and He is, if you are born again, the fruit of the Spirit, the whole fruit of the Spirit is in you. And you say, Scott, that can't be. I know I'm not like this. Or, really, I know that's not true of him because he's not like this. You can't tell me that all of the fruit of the Spirit is in this person because they're mean. Or they're lazy. Or they have no self-control. 
No, just because you haven't borne that fruit, just because that fruit hasn't been observed, and just because that fruit isn't therefore benefiting anybody else, doesn't mean it's not in you. What does James say? Well, let me, let me back up. I'm getting ahead of myself. Back to Philippians chapter 2 for a second. Philippians chapter 2, this time in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Now that second part there about to will and to do for his good pleasure, it's worth a sermon on its own, but I'm not going there today. I just want to point out that it does not say work for your salvation. This has nothing to do with earning your salvation. It says work it out. Work it out? Where is it? It's in you. Katergatsamai. That's the Greek word for work out or produce. It's my favorite Greek word. It's one of two that I know. Now I know a few more. But I'm not a Greek scholar, but I love this word. And Bob Gandian is the one who turned me on to it. And it's, it simply says this, that it's something on the inside being worked to the outside. My favorite example is an apple tree. Why does an apple tree produce apples? Because it's an apple tree. The only reason it can produce apples is because there are apples in it, in its genetic code, in that seed. It is built, it is designed to produce apples. Now, how does the average person know it's an apple tree? Because there's apples on it. Is there such a thing as an apple tree, even an adult apple tree with no apples? Yes. There are fruit trees that don't bear fruit. They have the age, but there's something lacking. There's nutrients that haven't been absorbed. That would be, uh, we can compare that to knowledge. The soil hasn't been cultivated. Something has gone wrong because an apple tree should produce apples. Same thing with us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are in you because this is what you have been made to be. The Spirit is in you. It is part of your spiritual genetic code. But if you are not bearing that fruit, it's because you have not cultivated that fruit. Or you have not been through a trial to produce patience. One of the first lessons I learned as a teenager is don't pray for patience because God will give you a trial. That's where patience comes, comes from. There's nothing wrong with praying for patience, and you can't avoid trials anyway. But God will bring things into your life, experiences into your life, people into your life, teaching into your life, many things into your life, and this is part of our working together, is we are helping one another cultivate the fruit of the Spirit because it is the fruit of the Spirit that indicates spiritual maturity. James 1, what we just read, what did it say? The testing of your faith produces patience, the fruit of the Spirit, not by itself. It katergodsamize. It doesn't create, it doesn't, a trial doesn't just uh, speak patience into your life. It's as we respond with the Word of God, respond in faith, the product, the produce of that is patience. Uh, 
Exodus chapter 39, beginning in verse 22. And this is where we're talking about some of the least exciting reading in the Old Testament, where we're talking about the construction of the tabernacle and the furniture of the tabernacle. And in this case, the design of the priestly garments in Exodus 39, beginning in verse 22. He made the robe of the ephod of woven work, olive blue. And there was an opening in the middle of the robe, like the opening of a coat of mail, with a woven binding all around the opening so that it would not tear. They made on the hem of the robe pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet, and of fine woven linen. And they made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates on the hem of the robe all around between the pomegranates. A bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate, all around the hem of the robe to minister as the Lord had commanded Moses. I believe that one of, what, one of the reasons we are seeing this here and why God went into this particular detail is to... Sh- I believe the bells, which weren't designed... The, the pomegranates weren't actual fruit that they attached to the robe. They made them out of linen. They sewed them. They were embroidered, okay? But the bells were real. Real gold bells. But the fruit was placed between the bells. And I believe the bells represent the gifts. And the fruit is there in abundance to keep the gifts from clashing into one another. If there's an abundance of fruit, the gifts will be there also in abundance, but the gifts won't clash, which is exactly what was happening in Corinth. Competing tongues and the like. I think, try this on. I think the flesh desiring to flow in the gifts says, uh, here I am. It's me. While the spiritual mature one humbly bows before the Lord Jesus who says, hear me, I am. Here I am, it's me, versus hear me, I am. I asked a question last week that at least one person was cruel enough, I mean kind enough to remind me of. If the gifts of the Spirit are so important, why would he entrust them to immature believers? Because this is something I think is clear as we read in these chapters in 1 Corinthians. Paul never accuses them of counterfeiting the gifts. He doesn't say the gifts aren't real. He says there's things you're doing wrong in your operation of these gifts, and it's not edifying the body. So why doesn't God simply withhold the gifts until we are more mature? And I don't have a perfect answer for that, but let me give you what I have. The short answer is they're gifts. You're not going to kill anybody operating in the gifts of the Spirit, even if you mess up a little bit. You know, I... Uh, this is an even less perfect example, but it popped into my mind and it might help you. Many, many moons ago, when I was, uh, I don't know, eight or nine, it was not too long after we moved into that house in the country uh, that some of you know where we used to live at the end of Patterson Cemetery Road. And uh, it was an exciting house to live in. A little bit scary house to live in, I think, if you're not crazy about snakes and spiders and things like that. But it had an attic, an old classic attic, and I used to love going into that attic and snooping through old boxes of pictures and finding stuff. And one time while I'm digging around the attic, I came across this 
exquisite set of toy guns. I mean, these were heavy, big iron cap guns. They looked like real pistols, big iron, okay? Holsters and all. I'm like, what are these doing up here? Are these some uh, ancient treasure of my father's? But they were clearly brand new. And, uh, and I asked mom about them. Mom, I don't know if you even remember this. And she said, you weren't supposed to see those. Uh, and I don't remember where they came across them or what, or what possessed them to get them. But they, dad had got his hands on them somewhere and decided this will be a great gift for Scott someday. But they're too expensive. They're too nice to give him now. But I had found them. And uh, so it wasn't long after that that I started playing with them. And again, I wasn't going to hurt anybody with them but I was a little careless with them, okay? I should have been you know, instructed into their value and everything, but they were a gift. And it doesn't mean that, what, that when God gives us the gifts that he's giving us toys, and that's where the illustration breaks down. He doesn't give us the gifts to play with, uh, but he's not going to withhold them until we achieve a certain thing because, again, they're not earned, they are given. Gifts abused might cause some temporary hurt feelings, a little bit of bitterness, uh, and other things that don't exalt Christ. But some of that is on us. If we are walking in love, believing all things, and I would put it in this case, believing the best about all things, instead of assuming the worst, we will, instead of thinking that person is just showing off, that person's too immature to be flowing in the gifts for real, that person's just trying to be spiritual, maybe instead we would think, that person is doing his or her best to flow in the gifts. What am I doing? I don't know how many of you remember uh, when Bill Bennett, who I think is still with us. Is William Bennett still with us? Uh, he, was, uh, he served as Secretary of Education on uh, President Reagan's, Ronald Reagan's cabinet. And at one point, I think fairly early in his career, in his tenure in that position, he made some really harsh statements, very colorful statements, about his, uh, expressing his complaints about teachers' unions. And the press absolutely excoriated him. I mean, they gave him a pasting. And he tells a story about how he attended a cabinet meeting shortly after that, and in walks President Reagan with six newspapers. And he's trembling already. He figures he's in for it because he, he, he did not represent the president in a kind manner. He, he put the, the administration in a bad light. He walk, and in walks the president with six newspapers and reads the headlines uh, that lambasted Bill Bennett out loud in front of the cabinet. Puts the papers down, looks at the rest of the team and says, that's what Bill's doing. What are the rest of you doing? That's pretty cool. Now, we are absolutely right, however, in exercising some kind of discernment. It is not, well, if that's the case, anything goes. Why? Because we have Scripture. We know what this is supposed to look like. I told you the story. I'm not going to tell it again. I'm just going to refer to it about two fairly well-known ministers having a conversation in tongues with microphones for 20,000 people to hear, and nobody else was being edified by this. Were they impressed? Were they excited? Yes. Were they being built up? No. How do I know? Because there was no interpretation. And he clearly tells us that interpretation is necessary. We'll get to that in detail in chapter 14. What we are going to read next 
in, for, in, in Corinthians 14 is going to give us the foundation for examining that kind of thing, not just tongues. Yet at the same time, we have to walk in love toward those who we think are getting carried away. Don't be so quick to judge those who are at least endeavoring to operate in the gifts of the Spirit. He desires to use all of us. And he's not going to beat you over the head if you miss it from time to time. That's good news. And it's not enough, frankly, for us to say, well, if I get an irresistible impulse, if Jesus Christ appears to me visibly and tells me specifically and spells out what to say in terms of a prophetic word, well, of course I'll do it. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that we are to eagerly desire the best gifts, to covet them. Is that, is that the attitude you have? Is it just, well, I believe in it, and I don't want to be resistant to God, so if he makes it super, super obvious in a blinding flashlight, then I'll do it? Or is it, Lord, I want to be used any way you see fit to bless the rest of the body. If there's something you can do with me that will build up this church, I'm your man, I'm your woman. Please use me. That's earnestly, eagerly desiring, coveting the best gifts. Now keep in mind, and praise the worship team, you can be coming, making your way up to the platform. All the stuff we're talking about, with regard to the gifts and our attitudes about them, this is all for the church. This is for believers. This is for those who have been grafted into the body of Christ and are the church. Remember, the, the word we, ke we keep seeing is edify. Think of an edifice, a building. We are going to be edified as individual believers, and we're going to be built together as a church. And by the way, when we talk about these gifts being used in the assembly, that doesn't necessarily, that's not limited to Sunday morning. Why can't the gifts be in, in operation during our small groups? Uh, it, we see it happening at prayer, prayer meetings, Monday night, Saturday morning. I've seen, the gifts being, I've seen the gifts in operation in conversation, where you just know something about somebody while you're speaking to them, and you have a word from God that will encourage them, bless them, help them, correct them. The more we are built up, as individual believers, and more importantly, the more we are built together as the edifice that is the body of Christ, what the church that Christ is building, the more effective we can, more effectively we can support one another, and the more effectively we can reach the world. The more solid we are as a church, the bigger blessing and the brighter beacon we are going to be to the lost around us. And just as in the book of Acts, when that happens, God will add to our number daily those who are being saved. That's what we want to see. Do I want to be walking in the blessings of God? Do I want to be speaking faith and blessings over myself and my family? You better believe I do. Our confession is important. And a lot of what we receive has to do with how we speak, certainly what we believe. But what God is about ultimately is building his church, 
everything he gives us is for the purpose of saving more people. Saving them from what? You know, speaking of gifts, God's greatest gift is Jesus Christ himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, eternal life. That's great news. What we can never forget. Stand up with me. Been sitting a while. He gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes should not perish. In Romans, it says this, that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Again, from what? From sin, from death, from hell. What we can never forget is that all of us need that. But I'm a good person. There's nothing about me that deserves hell. You're arguing with Scripture because Scripture says all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. There's got to be some. Nope, not one. All like sheep have gone astray. Nothing we can do of our own power, our own efforts, our own apart from God giftedness can make us right, can qualify us for God's presence, for his favor, for heaven. We need a savior. And the only thing that can save us is the blood of Christ. The only possible avenue to right standing with God is through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. How do we know though if he did it for you? He did it for everybody. Everything God is going to do to save you, he did 2,000 years ago at the cross. Well, then I'm good, right? Nope. If you will confess the Lord Jesus. If you believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. This is something that happens. This is a moment. This is a decision you have to make. It has nothing to do with whether you were raised in the church were confirmed by the church, raised in a Christian household, have you personally bowed your knee before Jesus Christ and said, I need that, that cross, I've known about the cross, I've known about you, but I get it now. I need you to be not just the Lord, but my Lord. I need you to be not just the Savior, but my Savior. I believe you are who the Bible says you are, Lord Jesus, and I declare that you are my Lord. I need you to save me. Take my life, be my boss. There's not a formula, but that's the elements of it. Recognize that you need a Savior. Recognize that he is the Savior and make him your Lord. So here's my question for you today. I've got two questions, two opportunities, two invitations. If you are here today, maybe you just realized it. I know I'm looking at a room full of mostly believers, and there's a handful of you that I don't know. But even if I knew every single person in here, I would still deliver this, this invitation. I don't know everything about you. I know for a long time, I was saved as a young man, but for years before I was saved, I thought I was saved, thought I was a Christian. And maybe right now the Holy Spirit is doing what only he can do in making you realize you need to make this decision. 
you've never made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, today's your day. I'm going to pray in a minute after I offer another invitation. And after I pray, I want you to come up here and let me pray with you as you give your heart to Christ. What, walk up in front of everybody? You'd be walking, front of, you'd be walking up in front of everybody who has already done this and who will do nothing but celebrate and cry with you as you are welcomed into the kingdom. If you are a believer, Scott, I did that. I'm not saying I've been perfect, but I did that. I know Jesus Christ, my Lord. I know I'm saved, I, but I'm not walking in any of this power and stuff that you're talking about. How am I going to be an effective witness? You cannot possibly. You are not going to succeed. You are not going to, to fulfill the call that is on the, the life of every believer just on passion. You need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is God's the greatest gift God ever gave is Jesus. That was his gift to the world. God's gift to the believer is the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, the very first message we preached in this service was about the disciples waiting in the upper room. They were saved. They were born again. They had passion. They had their instructions from Jesus. And the last thing he told them was, you wait. The one thing you don't have yet is power. So wait here until you have that power. And that power will come up on you, come upon you when you receive the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, He will give you the power to be my witnesses. So, if you desire to be saved this morning, if you desire to be filled with the Spirit, you come up here. As soon as I'm done praying, they start singing. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word, your clear word, and your precious promises, and your clear commands. Again, we give you all glory for everything that you've spoken to us in every way we're changing us. And right now, I believe it. I'm simply speaking the prayer that is on the heart of every believer, every spirit-filled believer in this room, which is that no one would leave this room today without being born again and spirit-filled. Holy Spirit, you're the only one that can speak to the heart of man and draw people uh, to Christ. So it's our prayer that you would reveal their great need for salvation to them and grant them the wisdom the humility and the boldness to respond and seize this opportunity. Likewise, to the believer who is comfortable in their salvation, who doesn't sweat their eternal destiny, but is not walking in the will and the power that you have for them, that you would cause a hunger to rise up, to be full of your Holy Spirit and power, to do everything that you've called us to do. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you come and let me pray for you. Hallelujah. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.